Der deutsche Spargelkult müsse enden. Germany's beleaguered defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD title. Und zwar ist eine Perle der deutschen Industrie. Und ich glaube, das kann man nicht. Ich weiß, wie viel Liebe dahinter steht. Wenn Glühweinstände aufgebaut werden, wenn Wachstum. Spargelweltmeister ist China, denn die bauen 60 Mal mehr. Hi, this is Michelle. Hey, this is Ted. Welcome back to Spaßbremse. Before we get to the content today, we want to announce our upcoming live event in Berlin on election night, September 26th, aka Supervaya Zontag. We are hanging out with our friends and fellow podcasters from the Corner Späti pod at Donau 115 in Neukölln. So come have a beer with us and watch the results come in. We'll link to the Facebook event in the show notes. Yeah, we'll be breaking down the election results live. There will also be a live stream of the event for anyone that can't make it to the bar in Neukölln. Oh, and it starts at 5.30. You can... Yeah, 5.30. Yeah. Results will come in around 6 and then... Or exit polls, and then we'll just go from there, kind of joking about the candidates and seeing what the coalitions might be. We've got a great episode for you today with special guest Philippa Siegel-Glöckner. She is the director of the think tank Desernat Zukunft. Ted interviewed Philippa about German economic policy, specifically this obsession with avoiding public debt, which is anchored in a law called the Schuldenbremse, the debt break, and also was carried out in a more extreme form through this concept of the Schwarzenull. Or black zero, meaning exactly balanced books for the government. Yeah, we should say this is a little more technical topic than we've covered before in our episodes. But it's really, really important for understanding the political climate in Germany, as well as Europe as a whole. So you'll know throughout these early episodes we've done in the podcast that we've been trying to set the foundations for understanding politics in Germany. You know, covering topics like reunification, Hatzfia, Angela Merkel's tenure as chancellor. And so you can see this topic really as like the fourth pillar of really, really fundamental topics that will give you these extremely important insights into Germany and help you understand the dynamics in the upcoming election, which from recording is three weeks away. Exactly. That's right. And Philippa does a fantastic job of really getting at the crux of how these economic constraints prevent the German government from effectively dealing with the problems this country is facing. Ted and Philippa's conversation also gets at the real effects of depressed wages and underinvestment that have damaged Germany's economy and society. I wanted to give an example from my life to maybe help make this less abstract. At my kindergarten job, I see the real world consequences of limited government spending every day. My coworkers and I are always thinking about the Personalschlüssel, which basically means the ratio of children to educators that is required by law. Not only for the safety of the kids, but ideally you want enough educators to create a positive learning environment. How many educator positions there are determines not only the quality of care, but how much stress really is placed on the workers at the kita. It's the difference between exhaustion and managing the day, how many people you have on a certain shift. 
This is true in hospitals as well. You see healthcare workers in Berlin right now going on strike for better conditions. Um, the big hospital chains, Charité and Vivantes, just voted with, I think, like 98% of the healthcare workers wanted to strike for an unlimited period of time. So restricted government spending really means overwhelmed care workers. And this speaks to this general trend in the care sector, not only keeping wages low, but squeezing staff numbers to the minimum mandated by law. And what I want to kind of say with this is that you really feel this pressure in the day to day. I, I couldn't tell you how many moments I've wished my team had an extra set of hands or even two additional people. That doesn't seem like asking for too much. You know, I work with toddlers and two and three year olds have a tendency to take off at full speed and then you're already holding another baby and darting through the hall to make sure this one kid doesn't get up to any mischief. So yeah, hearing all the German parties paying lip service to high quality early childhood education, yet going along with the status quo, not addressing the debt break in their platforms, knowing they won't secure the investment needed, it sucks. Yeah, so like that really puts it in concrete terms and you know, we also think this interview is great for demystifying the stuff around fiscal policy. You know, things like state budgets and fiscal rules sound super boring and abstract, but a lot of the things that suck about Germany come down to stuff like the debt break, especially the extremely strict way that it's been interpreted and implemented. And, you know, this this has real real world consequences, as we said, for anyone living in Germany or also the rest of Europe. You know, they've been dramatically affected by this. It's also just not that hard to understand the fundamentals of the economics here. And a lot of the mystification around this topic, I think, is very convenient because it serves to remove some degree of democratic oversight over these very important political decisions. People don't feel like they have the expertise to have an opinion about it. But this episode is going to help you avoid that and see what's actually going on in German economic policy without involving tons of jargon or like having to make graphs in an econ class or anything miserable like that. Like it's, it's quite clear and understandable. And like I said, will really help you get at the core of the problems facing this country. All right. On to Ted's interview with Philippa. Welcome, everyone, to Spaß Bremse. Um, I am joined here by a very special guest, Philippa Ziegel-Glockner, who's the director of Desenat Zukunft, which is a macroeconomic policy think tank in Germany that works a lot on trying to change the, the approach to fiscal policy in Germany and move it in a, in a bit more of a, of a progressive direction. But we'll get into all of that. So, Philippa, thanks so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me. And so I want to start a bit with where German attitudes towards public debt and public spending come from. I think a lot of our listeners might not be experts in that topic, but they probably have an idea that you know Germans, um, both on an individual and governmental level, are sort of famous for saving and are averse to taking on debt, whether that's, you know, People use the household analogy um, in the in the public sense, but also um, at the governmental level. You know, Germany tends to run a budget surplus, and in many ways, 
the idea that there should be balanced budgets has been codified actually into law in Germany, um, most famously with the, the Schuldenbremse in 2009. And, you know, also somewhat infamously under, under Schäuble with the, the Schwarze Null. And so I was wondering if you could just give us a brief description of the sort of traditional attitude toward public debt and fiscal policy in Germany, um, and kind of where this came from and what you think the origins of that are. Yeah, I mean, I think tracing down the origins is always very, very hard. And you probably have to be a psychologist and a historian to do that well. But I'll, I'll try to, to kind of give you my, my own story as I'm <laughs> exploring. First of all, I mean, you already mentioned it. I think it's definitely the case that Germans are a bit risk averse in, in general. And, you know, they think that wealth should come from hard work. Um, so when you talk about, you know, people working hard and hence, you know, deserving the stuff or earning their money to then like build their home, um, that feels about right to them. Uh, take out a loan to buy a home or build a home. That's, that's weird. The idea of a student loan here, most people really do not like that. They would rather study for longer and, you know, work in the meantime so they don't have to take out a loan. So there's this general sense of, of being very skeptical about, about debt. But then um, I guess public debt, again, is a, it's a specific thing. And what's quite peculiar about Germany is that we really draw this very close analogy between household debt, private debt, and public debt. So there's this, this famous image of the Swabian housewife. So the, you know, I, the idea that ideally the government should act like a Swabian housewife. Swabians are known for, for being fairly stingy. Um, so the government, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't spend, uh, overspend their budget and should just use whatever it always has in, in revenues. So I think this is again, like a really, really special thing in a way that, that we have this analogy, um, which I really haven't seen with American friends. There's very clear the public debt is something different and maybe we don't quite understand what it is, but you would never have the idea that it should be exactly the same as with a household. And then, you mentioned it already. I mean, we have a fiscal rule in the constitution. It's also something that American friends marvel at because we think it's so fundamental and that's, you know, good behavior and how you can separate it from bad. So it's a very normative concept. And um, the, the word Schuld in German, it's a very normative term. I mean, it means being wrong and it's the same as, as, as that. It's the same word in one. So yeah, I think we we have a quite a particular position towards that, although that's changing a lot, but maybe we get into that a little bit later. Absolutely, yeah. And I think this is something I've definitely seen a lot and I find very frustrating is people saying, oh, well, you know, you wouldn't want to run up your, your credit card that much. You know, why, like, why should the government spend? So could you just briefly elaborate why we shouldn't think of government debt as household debt or in the same way as that? Like, why is that comparison so inaccurate? Sure. I mean, first of all, maybe, you know, you don't even have to go that far. Um, if you are a company already, you know, when, when you don't take out a loan because you don't have any interesting investments to do and you don't expand, investors already look at you very weirdly, right? Um, so taking out debt, even if you're not a government, is not generally a a bad thing. But then why should we think of governments fundamentally differently? 
um, especially governments that have their own currency. Um, and in that case, maybe the US is actually the better example even than, than Germany. It's a very big difference between the US government um, taking on debt and a US household putting money on their credit card is the US government can produce the US dollar. So it can never go bankrupt because it can always produce its own currency to service its debt, its debt which um, the person with the credit card can't do. Now, the story gets a little bit complicated in Europe, and that's why I picked the American example, because Germany doesn't have its own central bank anymore in the same way that you and the US have the Fed. But we are the largest economy in the euro area. So the idea that Germany goes bankrupt or that somehow it wouldn't be able to get euros, I mean, that's pretty, pretty unlikely um, because it is a very substantial part of the euro area. Right. And I think uh, to, to draw the analogy to the credit card again, um, what do you pay about 17, 25 percent on credit card debt as an interest rate? And Germany can borrow effectively at negative rates. So there's clearly a lot of confidence in Germany's ability to pay that back. And the markets tend to signal like you should be borrowing more to do actual productive investments. Right. It's maybe even more fundamental than just um, confidence in, in Germany doing productive investments. The world needs safe assets and German bonds are the safe assets in euros. So whenever an investor wants a completely fail-safe euro-denominated investment, it will be German government bonds. So yeah, you said it, we can borrow at negative rates and actually the government is making quite a lot of money off borrowing. If you look at the government accounts, they are full of money. Um, They don't economize on borrowing. Um, because it actually pays them to do so. Yeah, so you laid out quite well why this why this doesn't make sense, why Germany really shouldn't be afraid to borrow more. However, there is this constitutional amendment, you know, it's, it's part of the law in Germany, um, that there's these very strict debts on public borrowing. And this became officially codified in 2009, right? And so why did this very misguided economic ideology achieve a common sense status in the German political system? So there are at least three stories around this. So the first one is Germany actually had quite rapidly rising debt in the 90s. Um, First of all, because we had reunification and we did have to spend quite a bit of money and interest rates were fairly high. So I I used to be a Ministry of Finance official. And when I talked to my older colleagues who were actually around at the time, you know, they told me, well, it's just not great to spend 15% of your budget on servicing um, your debt. So there is this kind of very real memory of a time where actually debt was a perceived real problem, where that was all a bit more difficult. Um, And then obviously, you know, once you've, you have that memory, Um, You don't really trust a situation where it's all so different and you earn money with your debt. So I think this is the first one that actually historically there was a bit of a struggle. And at the same time, we weren't growing that well. So it wasn't quite clear what the situation um, was and how you, you could get out of it. Secondly, I think there's a political economy story. So... Um, I think today this is now fairly well known because we've had a few grand coalitions. So the two largest parties in Germany being in government together, which, you know, gives a lot of stability, but can also be quite a stalemate. Um, So we're not known for being radical reformers that move very, very quickly. And basically, when you uh, introduce something like a fiscal rule um, that limits your deficit, 
uh, into the constitution, what you do is you kind of just narrow down your political playing field and what's up for grabs by a lot. And when you have two very large parties where both are kind of unsure how, how the political power struggle is going to end, um, you know, the conservatives wanted to lower taxes, the social democrats wanted to increase social spending, then one very easy way to get out of this um, and to reduce kind of the uncertainty and limit your own downside is to just take it off the table. And by implementing debt break, they could just take these things off the table. And when you read the notes from the parliamentary debates around the introduction of the debt break, that seems to have played a, a role. And then maybe finally, because I think that really kind of, you know, got the debt break into the constitution and gave the final push, that was the financial crisis. Because actually they, they'd been talking about it for a bit and it went back and forth and then it seemed to be kind of dead in the water. But then you had the financial crisis, you had to take on a lot of debt, um, you know, kind of the world seemed pretty shaken. And then with that, they were like, all right, we're going to do big crisis response, but we're going to introduce this constitutional rule and hence ensure in the future the debt level is going back down. Yeah. And so I, sh I should just clarify for any any non-German speakers, Schuldenbremse is the same as it translates to debt break. And so so when we talk about that, that's the that's the same thing. But yeah, you've yeah, that, that's a, a great summary. Lay that out very clearly in these these different reasons why this happened right in the in the wake of the global financial crisis, which is it's an interesting time, right, because some other economists were learning different lessons, more so that, that government spending was needed to re-stimulate the economy. German policymakers kind of go the other direction and say, no, we're actually, we actually want to tie our own hands. We won't want to take options off the table. So it's a, it's, a, it's a very particular response to this. And later on, we can get into it, how this was kind of exported on a more European level. But in terms of Germany, so like, what has this meant in practice? Um, you have this really good paper you recently published, you know, in terms of the things like limiting investment and kind of creating understimulation in the economy. I was wondering if you could lay out in detail a little more uh, what are some of the social, economic and problems, really environmental as well, that Germany has faced due to these limits on government spending? Yeah, actually, I mean, it's... It's, I think, non-trivial to kind of <laughs> see exactly what's what's happened and what the effect was because of two things. First of all, you know, when you have a such a kind of widespread agreement on that you should, you know, limit your deficit, you probably go even beyond that. And that's what we've done. So we hardly ever, you know, went to the limit. Germany actually managed to, to create a surplus, um, so to spend less than what it took in in taxes. Um, for quite a few years. So the question is, did the debt break do anything or was it actually the social consensus that, you know, even restrained you you further? And then secondly, we did have pretty good growth. Um, I mean, obviously pre-corona, but we did have quite good growth and, and quite decent growth in tax revenues. So at the federal level, there never really seemed to be that much of a shortage. That said, where you definitely do see the impact is at the local level because what they did is when they introduced debt break they also reorganized basically the the structure of of government finance across the different federal levels so what where you can really really see the impact is in local communities where you have rundown infrastructure um where you are just you know really short of people i mean whether it's you know child carers or people working in the administration 
yeah, or whether it's your infrastructure that isn't really growing with you. So now that we have to do all these climate-related investments, you can really see that <laughs> we we haven't really done this in recent years because we we focused on the money first. Yeah, this is this is super important because I think for you know for anyone who's not a an economics expert or you know some of this might seem a bit abstract and and a bit technical but you, you can really see the implications of these policies like you said on the local level like sometimes you know i i feel like I, I go to certain parts of germany and you can like almost feel the austerity tangibly like things feel understaffed the stuff's not repaired and you're like this is a this is a wealthy country that you know used to have this like reputation for efficiency and everything you know working quite well and you're like why is it all breaking down and in many ways, this is a downstream effect of these fiscal policies, right? And you have it in particular, and I think that's the really sad thing about it, in already disadvantaged areas, because that's where you really rely on the support of the federal government. I come from Munich, which some of your listeners may know because of the Oktoberfest, and Munich is fairly wealthy, so there it's all right. But you know, the city's going well anyway, so if there isn't that much public support, it's okay. But the areas that really need it, for instance, areas, you know, in the former GDR or um, in North Rhine-Westphalia, where you had a lot of coal and industries going down, you really don't have that federal support that you need to, you know, manage the change and to give people the safety and the trust that, you know, things will work out in the future. Yeah, that's that's a hugely important part as well. I mean, we talked in an earlier episode about sort of the economics of German reunification and how there was a lot of deindustrialization in the former East and much higher unemployment there. So you have that pre-existing condition and then compounded by a lack of ability to actually spend to make there be good social services, you know, increase investment, get, get people better jobs and so on. And just just the last point I'd like to ask on this topic is in terms of climate investments and the, the green Germany's, you know, green transition, which has been been delayed quite a bit. Um, and so the the conversation around the debt break has also tied into climate recently. And there's this big question of like, is decarbonization to the extent that's needed? Is that compatible with these public spending limits at all? Yes and no. Yes, because I think if you work really hard, you can always get around them. You cannot produce a fiscal rule that is so watertight that you're unable to spend money and for very good reasons, because in the end, you know, the government is sovereign and can't tie its, its own hands completely. Um, so in that way you can, but if you are, you know, as you would say, faithful and you try and, and really, really stick to the rule, um, I really don't think it's possible, no. We still, I think we're still working on the numbers, but just to give you a rough idea, I think we will have to spend about, you know, the equivalent of 10% of our annual budget on decarbonization investments. And that's that's large. It's not that easy to just cut that money somewhere else. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's, yeah, I think probably maybe even one of the most the most critical implications of, you know, trying to trying to balance the books every year, even though you're a government. And so, you know, you talk about just over a decade ago how this really achieved a kind of common sense status. There was a broad consensus across the two main parties, the CDU and the SPD. Recently, though, it seems like there might be some opening for political action or political change. And, and your paper that I referenced gets into that. We can get into a little more of the details about that later. To me, there's like three 
big shifts that might have helped affect the conversation in Germany. Um, one is actually doing a temporary suspension of the debt break because of Corona. And another being international shifts where under um, in the U.S. most famously, you know, Biden has gone gone fairly big on public spending um, with this coronavirus rescue plan and as well as these infrastructure bills that are still in the works in D.C. He has this quote that you put into your paper, quote, the biggest risk is not going too big. It's if we go too small. And so how has that worked? How has that changed the actual like calculus or the political debate here? Um, and as well, you know, I should say a third one being that there's been a, a bit of more debate in Germany in terms of the election positions. And so how have you seen those shifts and how do you see this political moment as different than about a decade ago? Yeah, so I think it's actually quite interesting because a lot has changed in recent years and I kind of rejoined the German debate around, I would say, 2016, 17. And by then there was still a very firm consensus on the black zero. So that's, you know, literally not spend more than you take in, you know, also like across the media, across parties. Um, so, so very, very firm consensus. And then you had a change in the academic debate, which doesn't actually, I think, arrive in Germany sometimes as, as quickly as sometimes one, one would think because of the language barrier. But obviously, you know, the international debate on government debt has shifted a lot. Um, and that has, I think, prepared the ground in a way. And then you said, uh, as you said, the corona crisis came and Germany suspended the deficit limit under the debt break, which you can do. There's a provision in the constitution to do that. And we borrowed a lot. And there was a real question around what would happen. Like people weren't so sure. Yes, in theory, we kind of knew that, you know, it was the safe asset in, in the Eurozone. But what just happens if you, you know, kind of blow it out of the water? And then, I mean, the experience was, well, our borrowing got even cheaper for the government. So investors paid us even more when we borrowed from them. So then we actually borrowed quite a lot. Um, so I think that experience in a way really helped to take away that threat that, you know, as soon as you take on more debt, uh, your borrowing costs will will explode. Um, that's been quite helpful to kind of, you know, provide an opening. But then there's a second step, which is about, is borrowing a thing that you should actually do or that's just kind of, you know, the last escape, but it's never something very desirable. And I think that's a much harder shift because that you also, you, on, on that one, you don't get a shift as a result of a crisis, because a crisis is an exception, it's different. Um, it doesn't really provide you with any justification or any conclusions for for normal times. So that bit, I think that's that's where the discussion is right now is, well, you know, should we borrow in the future even when the immediate crisis is over? And then, yeah, looking to the US was quite interesting because, I mean, Biden, first of all, had a very kind of forceful response to the crisis. Um, but then followed up with his infrastructure package. And yes, yeah, some people in the US may say it's too small, but when people here look at look at all the spending, it is kind of a different world. And it is quite interesting to look at someone who, from a German perspective, is not seen as a radical left winger. Even um, there was a there was a poll in the Frankfurter Allgemeine, which is a fairly conservative newspaper, and close to 80% of the people in the poll said Biden was doing a good job. So he's seen as someone, you know, from, from both kind of main political camps in Germany, he's seen as someone who's a 
responsible political leader. Um, and him taking on such a different fiscal policy uh, is definitely something that has, has helped to kind of move the debate even further. But I would be careful to say that there's a foregone conclusion that the debt break is not a good idea. And you quickly alluded to it. I mean, we, we have a national election coming up right now, and only one of the major parties is campaigning on a constitutional change um, to not even throw the debt break out of the constitution, but just create an exception for investment. Um, so it's by no means consensus yet. Right, that party being the Greens. Right? Yes. Yeah, and then you have. So yeah, I mean, Olaf Scholz is an interesting is an interesting kind of case study here about the the shifting shifting attitudes, right? Where he he has said currently he doesn't want to throw out the debt break. Something things can be done within that framework. Um, when he first took office as finance minister, kind of famously or infamously said, um, taking over from Wolfgang Schäuble, who who had. Um, had the, the you know his his staff lined up to make a black zero to say you know this is how dedicated we are to balancing the books it was quite intense about that and he said you know um, even though it switched parties as an SPD finance minister instead of a, a fairly hard right CDU one he said well it's not going to be that big of a change a German finance minister is a German finance minister has softened a bit throughout the crisis right and now says okay we're not going to throw out the rule but we can work around it to do investments and that's the sort of more middle ground. CDU a bit more, as you'd expect, you know, going back into the debt break and uh, and keeping things that way. So those are like, that's kind of the spectrum of positions of the three main parties, right? But what is still amazing and it really, really amazes me is that there are still people campaigning on the black zero even. So, you know, no borrowing at all um, or on tightening the debt break. This is the conservatives. Um, they they still campaign on that, and they think there's public appeal to that. I mean, when you when you listen to it, it sounds like the '90s. Yeah, and also on the the infamous note, there was a tweet from the CDU, right, where they said we uh, we stand by our fetish, and they had a little black a black zero in this image, and so they're like, even though this academic debate and the policy debate, and, you know, both domestically and internationally, has shifted away from that. They're interestingly like really doubling down on this, you know, sort of sort of even admitting that it's not super rational, but they're leaning into that even further. So it's a it's 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 bizarre to see the difference. It's right? becoming a bit of an identity debate almost. Because I mean everybody's aware that also, you know, the, the key parameters have shifted. Interest rates have come down, growth has come down. So, you know, when growth is low, you probably wanna um, invest more, you maybe want to run a little deficit like Biden is doing in the US. So everybody kind of agrees on that. Everybody knows the world has changed. But it's like, you know, we don't want to let go of this. This is our kind of, you know, this is good old Germany. So it's interesting because I would have never thought that something as technical as a fiscal rule, you know, could be part of a yeah identity debate. Yeah, that's a good point. It's like, yeah, it's 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 tra it's like reached another level where you see things like lose lose grounding from what it actually means, and yeah, like you said, just a, it becomes almost like a a culture war thing. But it's yeah, it's weird to have something so like arcane and technical as a fiscal yeah. rule become a culture war topic. Yeah. So now, yeah, moving on, I guess from you know how we got here, what the effects of it are, um, so like what what should we look for? What what can we hope for? Like what should fiscal policy ideally do? And within the current political context, I mean, having it in the constitution means you need a supermajority to get rid of it. And there's almost no 
probable political constellation that would actually do that. So this is this is baked into the German constitution in, in all likelihood for, for the foreseeable future. And your paper adopts that as a premise for policy recommendations. So what should the goal of fiscal policy be aside, you know, we're abandoning the idea that you should just balance the books. What are the real positive affirmative goals you should have? And how can we get there within the current political and legal context in Germany? Yeah. So as you said, that's a question that we tried to answer in a paper on a, on a new fiscal policy in Germany. But actually, yeah, I mean, we'll it's, link to that in the show it's notes. A, it's a great paper. I mean, it's it's a huge question. So, I mean, we tried to find some first answers. I'm not saying we've, we've solved it. And with fiscal policy, I mean, government finance, that, that kind of influences everything. So we tried to boil it down to, to a few things. The first one is, well, you probably, you know, you should do things that you really want to do politically for some reason. So for instance, now we really want to decarbonize our economy. So it's probably good to find money for that. But then the second thing is, and that's kind of a more of an internal reason of, of government finances. So how do you actually create sustainable government finances, finances that work out in the long term? And I mean, that's in the end what the people who invented the debt break, um, I think we're aiming to do. Yeah. So what do you, what do you do in order to make sure that that it works out with the money in the long term. And for that, you know, we try to take a step back and I mean, obviously also just read a lot of what's been published in the US. And when you take money out of the equation, you think about, well, you know, who or what creates wealth in society, at least in our advanced societies today. I mean, this is really about people working, right? And not just in an abstract way, but someone who works, pays taxes, and doesn't need uh, social security payments and um, you know pension support from the government. When you look at our budget, at least in Germany, a third of the budget is actually um, subsidy to the public pension scheme. So when you talk about sustainable finances, you know it's not servicing your debt. That's really not the problem. The big challenge we have, and we will have even more in the future, is you know how do we ensure that we have on the one hand decent pensions but on the other hand not our entire budget is going towards that um as our, germany of course being a, an aging country yeah exactly as our society is aging and aging quite strongly um so the relationship of basically you know people who are above 65 to to working age will will change dramatically and you will just have more people over 65 than people working so people who are at working age actually have to just earn a pretty decent salary so we can all you know keep our standard of living and that's really where we think um, you know the goal of, of fiscal policy should be so basically what this this means in concrete terms is full employment and not just full employment so that everybody who can work has a job but in germany the main thing is that everybody who has a job has a good job and there it's a little different to the US. Our unemployment rates have been very low for quite a while, also because of some labor market reforms we had in the early 2000s. But quite a lot of people earn very low wages. So about a quarter of the labor force is on, on low wages. Um, and they haven't really increased very much in, in the past 15 years. I mean, maybe in the, like 2017 to 19, but before that, they were pretty stagnant. And then you have a lot of people working part time or having jobs that you don't have, don't have proper social um, security attached to them. So it's really about people having a job that pays for their life. And if you manage that, 
we are convinced that we will have sustainable finances in the long term. And in a way, we feel like this is a much more prudent goal than balancing your books every year because you can balance your books this year, but you know, you have no idea what happens next year and the year after. It's very short-sighted. It's in a way like, you know, you think your government's probably not around or your 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 country is not going to be around in five years' time, which is very, very odd perspective to adopt. You you probably want to think about the next 30 years, right? So yeah, we we essentially identify this goal of, of full employment and for Germany, because when you talk to people here and you say, well, the goal should be full employment, they're like, well, what are you going on about? We have full employment. So here we've then adopted the term full capacity utilization, which means, you know, actually make good use um, of of everybody who's around and, and who can work to have a productive job that can can afford their life. Right. So really kind of flipping this budget sustainability thing on its head saying, well, sustainability doesn't mean balanced books every year. Sustainability means getting people engaged and involved and into a productive way. So they're earning more, like they have a better life, but they also have a higher wage, which is higher tax revenue, higher productivity, so on and so forth. And, you know, I mean, in a way, this is a lot more durable, right? Um, I guess everybody has a situation where you kind of look around your family and you you think, you know, do you need to worry about someone or not? And when they have a good education and they have a good job, like you can normally be pretty certain that they're going to be fine in life. It's all right. And I mean, this is the same with the government. When, you know, most people in your country have a decent job, they're probably going to be all right. Um, if you don't have that, you have to do some some kind of magic or at some point, you know, the whole system is going to break down. Once you've lost a lot of good jobs in your country, it's also very, very hard to bring them back. There is no quick fix, right? Um, you can't just start up, <laughs> I don't know, uh, 10 companies and, you know, create a couple of thousand jobs and uh, uh, and just have that. Once a company is gone, it's gone. So, yeah, we really think it's kind of, it's it's a lot more durable, Hence, this is what you should focus on. And this is without getting into too much detail while, uh, why the, the Euro crisis in a, thing, in a way has been really heartbreaking because by doing all these austerity programs and you know forcing countries to run surpluses, you see jobs go away and companies go away, companies going bankrupt in countries like Greece, and you know they're not going to come back. So whatever they do right now, their finances are not going to be sustainable despite all the pain and human suffering that you have right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that that's the other huge aspect of this is like, yeah, okay, you know, you can say we're going to have higher productivity, higher you know, labor force utilization, whatever. This is all, you know, kind of a bit, a bit technical and abstract, but you're really at the end of the day talking about people's lives here. It's like, it's, it's, and, and how that can kind of corrode society as well. If there's this idea that there's not, any way to move up. I mean, we talked in our episode on, on Hatzfia about um, the Germany has very low intergenerational mobility. It has you know, very high inequality. And that can be kind of a, a corrosive element in society if people don't feel like there's good jobs out there for them and there's not really any way to, to move up and, and kind of you know, utilize their, their potential. And so like, what can we actually do here? You know, there's a few concrete things that you talk about, um, you know, like the moving beyond the jet to, debt to GDP ratio as this key indicator, like it's been, you know, what, like, what can we do within the confines of, of the existing debt break? But what are these little tweaks that could actually have a big impact? Yeah. So maybe to, to answer that, the best way is to start with what the debt break actually does, because 
There, there must have been someone very, very smart who came up with this name dead break because the dead break is a complete misnomer. Um, it doesn't actually put a break on debt. It puts a limit on the annual deficit. So how much more can you spend than you make? This can still mean that actually government debt changes a lot because of some, I don't know, outside transactions of some government company that loses value. So lots of stuff can happen outside this. Uh, we still can't control our debt level. What the debt break does is it limits your annual deficit to 0.35% of uh, GDP. And then it says, oh, well, but, you know, um, in economics, there has been this kind of demand side revolution. People saying, well, you know, when the economy is going down as government, you should lean against the wind and you should do some deficit spending to, you know, create additional demand, get the economy back up on its feet. The other way around, when you know the economy is, is running hot, government should take money out of the economy, should take demand out of the economy, so run a surplus. So the creators. It's classic kind of countercyclical. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. it's called countercyclical uh, fiscal policy, and the inventors of the debt break did not ignore that. Um, their idea was that they could combine limiting debt with uh, countercyclical fiscal policy. The really tricky thing there is, so in order to know when you're allowed to spend a bit more or run a deficit um, or when you need to save more, you need to quantify so that you can, you know, put it put it into the constitution. You need to quantify when the economy is below or above capacity. Now, the problem is that no one really knows where capacity is. And then what we basically had over the last uh, 20 years leading up to, to the implementation of the debt break is in economics, um, you know, this huge branch of economics working on basically how you could calculate capacity and, and refining these calculations. It turns out all of these are very problematic because just no one really knows where capacity is um, and you definitely can't specify it in the constitution. And also, so so what the German constitution ends up saying is you are allowed to um, to go beyond the 0.35% that you're always allowed to borrow if the economy is deviating from its normal state. Um, and normal state, obviously, you know, isn't a very precise definition. So you can make it precise if you put a calculation, if you attach a calculation to it. But that calculation itself isn't in the constitution. The constitution doesn't go beyond uh, the normal state. So what we propose and what we think really the opening is, is that we redefine what this normal state is um, and that you can do without changing the constitution. That's what you can do in kind of in the technical descriptions of, of how you do the calculation. So these technical calculations themselves become a kind of political battleground. Yeah. Right? And so, and, and what's interesting about it is, um, so you can reconcile these two objectives of, on the one hand, limiting debt, and on the other hand, having counter-cyclical fiscal policy. You can only reconcile them when your economy isn't below capacity most of the time. Because if it's below capacity most of the time, you are allowed to run a deficit more than you have to save additional money. So your debt will actually increase. So the two objectives only go hand in hand when your economy is as much kind of above capacity as it is below capacity. So obviously no one knows this, 
So what do you then do if you have, you know, you install a debt break and you really want to limit your debt? And in the end, I think, you know, the top objective in Germany was limiting debt. And the smart thing they did was, well, you can just define capacity of your economy as the average of what has been the case in the past. Because, you know, if your if your capacity today is the average performance in the past, obviously, you know, you can never for a long time be below the past average because you will drag down the average itself. So by definition, your economy can't be below capacity for a prolonged period of time. So this was in a way genius because just by your definition of capacity of the economy, you ensured that you couldn't have deficits for a long time. So it's basically this tautology baked into these estimates, right? And like ignoring the possibility that, well, okay, what if you've been under capacity for a super long time, then your like, quote, potential capacity is going to be artificially low, which is what a lot of people, I think probably yourself included, would, would agree with, right? Yeah. And I mean, just to make this a bit more tangible, because it can be quite abstract. So after the financial crisis and the debt crisis in Europe, for instance, in Spain, unemployment went up a lot because the whole building industry crashed. So, you know, you went far beyond 10%, 20%. So then, you know, you start having these crisis years in your calculation of your potential where, you know, you have 15, 20% unemployed. And then this just becomes the new normal and your new capacity. So then post-crisis, when the economy starts to, you know, uh, run a bit better again, you are very, very quickly, you are above capacity. And then everybody tells you when you have 13% unemployed, oh, you have to start saving money because your economy is running really hot. And that's been, to be, to be honest, that's been quite absurd. And, and maybe just, just one more thing to add to this. The problem is that when you do this kind of management of your economy, you know, turning up and down your, your deficit, um, so how much demand you have in the economy, the first jobs that go away when you start saving more as government and you really suck demand out of the economy, the first jobs that go away are the jobs of people who are marginally employed and um, young people. So who've just joined the labor market because it's very easy to let them go. So what you see in a lot of these European economies like you know Spain and Greece and Italy is very, very high youth unemployment. Uh, first of all, that's, that's politically just you know toxic. And secondly, again, a disaster for long-term sustainability of your finances, because, you know, someone who's just joined the labor market and then been out of a job for 10 years, I mean, chances that this person kind of, you know, properly gets integrated back into the labor market is kind of small. So if there, is there anything else you'd like to add on in terms of the, the content of your paper and what can be done? Because I want to conclude by asking about this election upcoming, obviously in about three weeks by the time this comes out. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. You know, what what do you think might happen in the election itself, and what we can hope for to be implemented afterwards? If you know the the constellation of parties there might be a bit amenable to some progress on this front. Maybe maybe just one last thought on on the paper or our proposal. Um, and maybe you know, <laughs> it comes out that I'm a bit German myself in this. But we propose, you know, as I mentioned, that we're gonna tweak basically the execution of the debt break or the details there a little bit, but that, you know, we don't kick it out of the constitution right now. And even if the political majority was there, I actually think, you know, 
doing an incremental approach. I mean, maybe if we didn't have the political constraints, it would be slightly different, but taking an incremental approach and seeing what happens with the economy um, is a good thing. Because, I mean, we now talk about all this stuff like we really understand what's going on. Economies are so complex and you are moving such huge amounts of money, influencing so many people's lives that I think, you know, basically having a look what happens and then taking the next step is actually maybe not the worst of, of all ideas. So I would be very happy if we were able to keep the momentum, if we were able to make a first step right now um, after the election and then see what happens and then, you know, hopefully get to a more useful um, idea of fiscal policy and prevent a backlash as well that, you know, people at some point get very scared again. I think some of our some of our listeners might uh, might be a bit more in terms of a generally favor a bit more of a radical approach. But yeah, I think uh, in the German the German political system, I don't think that's uh, necessarily in the cards. So yeah, I think uh, I think what you lay out is probably the the most feasible way forward at this time. And so, what do you see as? I mean, the SPD, you know, you we were involved with has been doing quite well in the polls. Obviously, we mentioned that they're a bit of a, a middle ground approach on on what to do about the fiscal rules. So, let's say that they're the largest party uh, going into the election. The polls as of now kind of hold, you know, there's there's different options for coalitions. What would you hope to see there? And what do you think really tangibly could be achieved on the fiscal policy front? Yeah. So what I would really hope to see is exactly the change that we propose. I mean, you know, whether it's the details of how we want to adjust the the, the the calculation of output potential or whether it's something slightly different. <laughs> I'm very open to that because uh, we're definitely not the smartest kids around the block. There, there, there might be smarter ones and better ideas, but that's what I would really, really like to see because first of all, it's important for fiscal sustainability. And secondly, you know, it's pretty upsetting when you live in this country and all day you're being told German economy is doing so well, it's such a rich country. And then the personal experience is that you're actually struggling and it's not that easy to get by. Um, and a quarter of, of Germans, between a quarter and a fifth, depending on how you measure it, being on low wages, I mean, that's the, that's the daily experience of quite a lot of people. So actually changing that fiscal policy goal to, you know, having a properly running labor market where more people have the chance to have a good job. I think would actually be a great outcome also from a, from a political um, perspective. And that's one thing. And then secondly, I mean, obviously we urgently need to decarbonize and, you know, we're an industrial country and we rely heavily on, on industrial exports in particular cars. So we really have to transform a lot and we have to transform fast and we have to do something about local finances where most of the infrastructure investment to decarbonize um, really have to happen. So I would really hope um, that we manage to to create something there and that we create that we can create something that where, where the money doesn't come with contracts that are 50 to 60 pages long because I mean Germans kind of love bureaucracy and difficult rules and you know, if we wanna if we wanna reduce emissions by sixty five percent by twenty thirty, we don't have time for this stuff. You need to give steady financing to to the city councils so that they can plan and for the next ten years, you know, can focus all their attention on actually building the things they need to build. Absolutely, yeah, I think that's all. That's all very important, and I'm glad that that 
a bunch of uh, a bunch of smart people like you and and your co-authors are trying to to get these ideas into the mainstream there because yeah i mean me coming to germany um you know and seeing seeing a lot of these problems and you know kind of you, you hear certain stories about it like you said oh germany's so wealthy everyone's doing so great has this great social system everything's working and your first-hand experience there is maybe not doesn't really line up with that and you know this is someone with a, a decent education and a decent job like i'm not I'm, I'm not like super struggling but you see a lot of people who are in a lot of a lot of problems and you're like wait how how is this happening even here i mean you you always hear so much about kind of Germany forcing austerity on Southern Europe and, and creating this immiseration, but it's not like everyone here is living large. And so more spending could could really help both at the domestic and the European level, as you lay out in your paper in terms of alleviating some of these big imbalances. Right? Yeah. And I mean, when you talk about the daily experience, you know, it's, it's the German economy is a weird one because most of the really high value add stuff is is industry and is complex industrial products. But the vast majority of people actually work in the service sector. I mean, I think as as in most advanced economies, um, and their experience, yeah, is this very different one. And it's you know it's partly one because you have an issue with uh, the structure of the economy and and the structure of the labor market. But actually, a third of wages in the German economy go to so- the social service sector, and the social service sector is not one that's determined by the market; it's shaped by the government. And prices and wages are largely set by the government. Um, I mean, Germany is a lot more regulated than the US. So, you know, the, the healthcare market, the market for, for elderly care, for education, basically all these prices and wages are being set by the government. And what you get when you have fiscal restraint, when the government doesn't want to spend that much money, I mean, you essentially get depressed wages in all these areas. So all the people doing crucial service to society, looking after our children, looking after our elderly, you know, all these people are the ones that are actually not um, being rewarded properly for, for what they do. So that's what I think we really, really need to change. Thanks so much for joining. Really, really appreciate your insights as a real, real expert in this field and someone that's, you know, that, that's gone through the nitty gritty of this. Um, where can people find your work? Um, you can find it on our website, so www.dezernatzukunft.org, and um, I hope Ted will put it in the show notes because it's an yeah, I'll link to it. Insanely yep. German name. Um, it's me. It's 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 the most bureaucratic way of basically naming a department um, in a public institution. That's what Dezernate are. So we thought Germany needs a department for the future, so that we start looking forward. But yeah, so. Uh, you can find it all on our website. We're also pretty active on Twitter. So if you follow us there, you'll, you'll be able to, to get most of our work. And we do also engage in the English debate a fair amount, I think, because um, we really enjoy it. Uh, so looking forward to also being disagreed with, for instance, on how quick we, we, we have to move on reform. Great. Yeah, we'll definitely link to all that, including the, the Twitter handle. No, no, I think I think the name's smart. You know, it's not not too threatening to the German bureaucrats, even though you're having a, a bit a bit uh, slightly radical proposals for, for what's considered normal. So I think good, good work there. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks a lot, Philippa. Thanks so much. And Michelle and I are back. So, yeah, really great perspective and information there from Philippa. But, you know, of course, at Spassbremse, we really strive for fair and balanced coverage. So, of course, we want to hear from both sides of this debate. 
you know, we talked a bit about Wolfgang Schäuble on the interview, so we thought it would be great to hear straight from the man himself, you know, the, the former finance minister of Germany and current president of the Bundestag, all around economic villain in Germany for the last several decades. So, you know, it's going to be really, really important to get his intelligent and informed perspective on the economic situation in Germany and Europe in the wake of the Corona crisis. So we've got a little reading for you from Wolfgang himself in none other than the Financial Times. We've got the weird peach color page pulled up. It's an opinion piece by Wolfgang Schäuble titled Europe's Social Peace Requires a Return to Fiscal Discipline. Yeah, and I think we can kind of see this almost like a sequel to a previous FT piece he did a full decade earlier titled, so this is 2011, why austerity is the only cure for the eurozone anyone familiar with the last 10 years of economic history in the eurozone will know that this is completely wrong uh, they did implement austerity you've got about 30 percent youth unemployment across much of southern europe you've got some countries that have completely stagnated in gdp growth um, some even gone down almost everyone considers the post-financial crisis austerity a total disaster and so Wolfgang, having, you know, just saying had great opinions a decade ago, feels the need to chime in yet again and offer his advice about fiscal discipline again, i.e. austerity. Michelle, take it away. Let's start with the subtitle. The EU's post-pandemic recovery plans should make room for a debt redemption fund. Quote, in the long run, we are all dead, wrote John Maynard Keynes 98 years ago. He believed short-term economic intervention was necessary in times of crisis to stabilize the economy. New stimulus programs, including the EU's post-pandemic recovery fund, are in line with this tradition. I was in favor from the outset, to the surprise of some people. Right, that's surprising because he vehemently opposed things like that during the previous crisis. But, you know, okay, okay, Wolfgang, we're, we're doing all right. Let's go on. During my time as German finance minister, I had a reputation for frugality as a matter of principle. Interesting there. <laughs> principle saying like not of economic sense or like good policy, but like principle. And this born this way, frugal Germans. <laughs> right, right. And this is like like Philippa talked about this too, right? This almost like moral and like emotional attachment to frugality, not saying it's the good policy but saying it's like the right thing to do. And it's funny that he's even admitting this in the second paragraph. Yet then, as now, my goal was sustainability. Borrowing in times of crisis to stabilize the economy makes sense, as long as the question of repayment is not forgotten. The need to pay back the debt later is often overlooked. Many governments focus on the easy bit of Keynesianism, borrowing, and then postpone repayments of their debts. This leads to continually expanding sovereign debt. Sooner or later, inflation looms. Keynes saw this as a major threat, citing its potential for, quote, overturning the existing basis of society. Yeah, so this looming inflation thing, the favorite, favorite topic of mainstream German economists. Inflation in the Eurozone has been next to nothing, definitely below the 2% the target on average for the last several years. So this like monster inflation that's always looming is like a total bogeyman, like isn't isn't real in any 
any concrete sense. To the extent that there is any inflation today, most experts agree that has to do with supply bottlenecks as a result of the corona crisis and not broader economic policies. So this is just a made up thing. Um, Schäuble, like a lot of people, will always invoke the 1923 hyperinflation, you know, where you see probably seen these pictures of everyone in the, the wheelbarrows of money or burning the, the marks because they were so worthless. And so there's this like idea like, oh, we're so traumatized by this and we're extra sensitive about inflation. It's just really a way of supporting Germany's economic interests by making them more competitive or or just kind of a neurotic weird thing. I mean, either way, it makes no sense. Continuing here, currency values are under pressure in many regions of the world, including the EU. Here, more than elsewhere, debt finance fiscal policy is flanked by monetary measures. Monetary supply in the Eurozone has been massively increased without being adequately matched by an increase in the volume of goods and services. This boosts the inflationary expectations of firms and private households. In this way, the Eurozone risks a currency devaluation that could take on a virtually unstoppable dynamic. Yeah, so now he's making this inflation nonsense even more explicit, kind of channeling Friedman here, you know, his famous quote that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, that like there's some mechanical relationship between increasing the money supply, which central banks have done and like runaway inflation. We've had a decade of evidence to the contrary of this. The money supply has increased massively. Inflation growth has been very low. So like he's just empirically completely wrong here. This is, again, like a scare tactic from the past or just like garbage Friedmanite economics recycled. Already, the consumer price index exceeds the European Central Bank's benchmark of below but close to 2%. Central bankers are not alone in their alarm. Keynesian economic experts like Larry Summers or Olivier Blanchard lament the crossing of red lines on public debt and point to the increased likelihood of runaway inflation. In real estate, shares, and artworks, the danger is already acute. The asset price index rose last year by 6.3%. Indeed, quarterly growth rates even reached double digits. A significant portion of the monetary overhang created by the ECB is evidently being invested on capital or property markets and is feeding speculative bubbles. Yeah, so this is really stupid in like a number of ways. Basically, every sentence in that paragraph is completely wrong. So, okay, maybe inflation exceeds 2% for a very brief period of time, but you have to look at the average over a period of a longer period of time. And if you do that, it's way below 2%. There's nothing to worry about here. Then he goes to, quote, Keynesian economic experts like Larry Summers. Larry Summers, of course, was referred to as a new Keynesian, which I think you can think of sort of like new labor, meaning not at all like the previous thing. Like, in no way is Larry Summers a credible Keynesian. Stealing valor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is a joke. I mean, like Larry Summers and Wolfgang Schäuble, I think they're, it makes sense to compare them. You know, they're both in... in in policy quite a bit, lingering around for a long time, basically just making people miserable and being completely wrong every time and yet still rising up the ranks and having a ton of power. So citing him is like, all right, well, that's that already is really telling on yourself quite a bit. Blanchard actually is funny because he wrote a response saying he didn't think this was a threat in Europe. Like after Schreiber published this, he's repudiated this piece. So he cites him completely out of context. 
Then he talks about growth in. Why are they talking about artworks? Like, is that? Yeah, like who cares? <laughs> I, like who buys artwork? Like exactly. Like real estate, stock shares, and artworks. Okay, what do those three things have in common? Who buys those? Insanely rich people. Right. And what has happened to inequality recently? It's increased. So insanely rich people have way more money. So naturally, they're going to spend it on like artwork. And so people are going to spend $250 million on an NFT or something stupid. Like that's not something we need to worry about. Like ordinary people don't buy that. I mean, house prices are a problem, but that has a lot deeper causes than this, like the lack of housing and affordable housing for people and social housing going down massively in Germany. And so like citing runaway inflation in toys for rich people as like this concern trolling is super, super nefarious. Back to Schäuble here. This is no mere economic problem. It also creates risks for the social fabric. I love worrying about the social fabric. Yeah, like notoriously <laughs> concerned about social fabric. The guy that ripped Greases apart. Cool, man. Most lenders to states are wealthy individuals and entities. Public borrowing increases their wealth, widening the gulf between rich and poor. Keynes once warned that profiteers would become the object of hatred. Now the gap between haves and have-nots poses a huge threat to social cohesion. Again, just super, super evil here, like in this concern trolley way. So we're supposed to cause a recession in the name of inequality. This, this is completely, completely illogical and just very evil. Like what helps poor people do better is the government spending more to give them better social services. We must therefore return to monetary and fiscal normality. The burden of public debt must be reduced. Otherwise, there is a danger that the COVID-19 pandemic will be followed by a debt pandemic with dire economic consequences for Europe. With their aging populations, EU countries will struggle to match the US and China in productivity and competitiveness if they allow excessive debt to jeopardize their financial flexibility. Thus, all Eurozone members must engage in efforts to return to stricter budgetary discipline. Yeah, Philippa dissected this very, very weak argument pretty well. Do you know what really hurts productivity and competitiveness? Is not investing in your economy, not educating your people, not having infrastructure that works. If you're worried about things like competitiveness, that's your problem. No one really cares if your books are balanced when your roads are falling apart and your trains are always late and you're lighting the earth on fire because you're still building coal because you haven't transitioned to any sustainable energy. And yet all these parties with their Wahlplakate about Zukunft are looking towards the future and <laughs> say they're going to... Right. Like, I'm, I'm going to be so happy when my kids inherit a Schwarzenegger. Like, they're going to be so proud oh, of their dad and be like, well, that's, that's, that's really great. You know, so I'm, I'm, I'm just excited for that moment. Continuing here. Experience shows that balanced budgets in countries with high levels of debt are almost unattainable without external pressure. Left to their own devices, members of a confederation of states are likely to succumb to the temptation of incurring debt at the expense of the community. I have discussed this moral hazard with Mario Drahi on many occasions. We have always agreed that given the structure of European Monetary Union, competitiveness and sustainable financial policies are the responsibility of member states. 
So here we get back to this weird moralizing thing, calling debt a temptation. Like, oh yeah, it would be such an awful temptation if uh, Michelle had more coworkers that were able to educate children better. We definitely can't do that. This idea that it's like, it's immoral to borrow, even when it's very possible interest rates are super low and it, like economies are desperate for more investment now. And so saying this is like, has a has a moral problem with it is like is such an odd thing to say a promising approach for brussels to take would be a eurozone debt redemption pact similar to the sinking funds devised by robert walpole and alexander hamilton as the first treasury secretary hamilton obliged the new u.s states in 1792 to deposit good collateral practice budgetary discipline and reduce their debts that was the crux of the oft-cited Hamilton moment, not the mutualization of debts sometimes recommended for the EU. Yeah, so this is kind of like EU policy wonk stuff, but everybody was going on about the Hamiltonian moment when the EU agreed to this $750 billion in, in joint debt, the first time the EU had had joint debt in its history. It looks like it'll probably be a one-off thing. It's tough to say. But again, like, Schroeder is like twisting everything here. Like he's saying, okay, yeah, there were fiscal rules on the individual U.S. states, but the U.S. central government then took the ability to borrow and now borrows quite a bit. And so saying you need to maintain the budget discipline at the state level, analogizing would be the country level in Europe, without the federal level, which is like obviously the U.S. government and the EU in Europe, without giving the EU the same fiscal powers that the U.S. state has, the analogy here is just makes no sense. The debt redemption plan worked and could work again today. It provides a mixed strategy of carrots and sticks, like that pursued by the IMF, another legacy of Keynes. I am confident that Europe will be wise enough to also follow the British economist in this aspect of his doctrine. Yeah, another just total... Not in any other aspects. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A total, total misrepresentation of history and Keynes himself, of course. Uh, the, the IMF, as envisioned by Keynes, was going to be a lot different than it acts today. It was actually going to like work a lot better to balance countries' balance of payments. They're like trade deficits and surpluses, not just implementing and imposing austerity as conditions of loans on countries, which is mainly what it does today while surveilling their economic policies and kind of telling people that they need more austerity. You know, historically, that's been the role of it, which is not what Keynes wanted at all. So invoking him here, again, very, very cynical. And, you know, there's probably some other Keynes quotes that are a lot better suited here. You know, there there was a response to this letter from a ton of economists uh, that, you know, the names you'll recognize, we can also link that, you know, including Filippo was, was authored this, along with people like Adam Tooze and Stephanie Kelton. And, they cite a much more apt Keynes quote, which is, look after employment and the budget will look after itself. And, you know, Philippe has said that quite well in the interview of a better way of increasing tax revenue might actually be to get people good jobs and invest in your society because then they're not making minimum wage. They're actually increasing productivity. And then the budget, as Keynes said, will look after itself. There's also another famous quote of his that's gotten a lot of play recently is that anything we can do, we can afford. Meaning like 
if the state has the ability to build stuff and invest, it can come up with the money. That's not the problem. The problem is the capacity of the state to do this stuff. So if you can do it, spend it, build it, because then you have it. And that's obviously true, especially as we face this climate crisis, along with decaying infrastructure. Like once you have concrete things, they're there. And like that lasts and that's important. And the state can afford it. And of course, Schäuble doesn't use quotes like this. You know, he completely misrepresents Keynes' legacy and uses it in this totally distorted way to advocate for the only thing he knows how to do, which is austerity, 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 with massive social consequences, as we already have a decade of information about how bad these kind of policies are. And he wants to do it all over again. Luckily, Maybe the intellectual tide is turning a little bit. We'll see if that manifests itself in policy at all. But this kind of approach has been pretty discredited, as I think this this letter, um, people like Philippa and her think tank and, you know, a, a bunch of others writing about this now agree that the post 2008 push towards austerity was a mistake. And hopefully we see some changes in that result because we really need it both for individual people's welfare and not totally destroying the earth. Ooh, I agree. <laughs> Good, I'm glad. What that's <laughs> Is that all you got? Anything else? Want to talk shit about Wolfgang Schäuble anymore? I don't. This man is confusing. And I don't. <laughs> yeah, not, not, not a good guy, folks. Luckily, he's, he's on his way out. His ideas look like they're getting a lot less traction than they used to. And yeah, hopefully something decent happens after the selection. I think that's all we got. So yeah, please come down to our show on the 26th. You know, we've kind of been building up to this election in terms of our content. So this gives you a chance to see the real results in action and laugh about German politicians, which is always a good time. You'll only understand the jokes if you listen to all the episodes before the live show. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna check your Spotify account and make sure at the door and make sure you listen to all of ours. So yeah, it's a mandatory mandatory homework event. No, no, don't worry. Coming out. Yeah, doesn't matter. Thanks a lot. Juicy. Cheers. Spaßbremse is hosted by Ted and Michelle and produced by Isaac Werman, this week with special help from Tom Wills. Check out the show notes for things referenced in this episode, including Victor's memoir and his Berlin Bulletin on theleftberlin.com. You can listen to more episodes of Spaßbremse on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, most other podcast platforms, or wherever you are listening right now. Subscribe to be notified each week when our new episode drops, And if you like what you're hearing on the show, feel free to give us a rating, leave a review, or share with other people who you think could use a little Spaßbremse in their life. You can also find updates about Spaßbremse on Twitter, at Spaßbremse, that's S-P-A-S-S-B-R-E-M-S-E underscore pod. Thanks for listening.